Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Thank you for taking time to join us as we take time to learn from God's Word together. The message you are about to hear comes from the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Listen to more sermons or learn more about the church at our website, capenazarene.org. Today is the beginning of a series for the next few weeks where we will be looking at the book of Ruth together. Uh, This story is a story of redemption, a story of deliverance, a story of finding one's place in the grace of God. Today we are going to learn about uh, identification and commitment, knowing who we are. I want to read for you today from Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab. He and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Milan and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered His people and given them food. So she sent out from the place where she had been living, and she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Well, go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Well, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It has been far more bitter for me than for you because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. And they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. (laughs) May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Call me no longer Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. 
I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The story begins by saying, in the days when the judges ruled. Now for me, I imagine hearing those words like at the beginning of a great film history biopic with Morgan Freeman saying those words. In the days when... I can't do that. I cannot, I cannot do that at all. In the days when the judges... Just imagine his voice. You can imagine the camera like zooming in from like the top of the world into this area, into this, into this world. You can see the tiny villages scattered throughout the country as it zooms in. You can probably see that there's some skirmishes there. In the days when the judges ruled. is this idea, this is before there were kings, before they were established nations. There were just tribes scattered out the 12 tribes of Israel and other tribes of the world. Uh, the, the people who are ruling are not sitting on thrones. They don't have castles or fortresses. They just have their homes in, in the little villages that are shielded by nothing more than like wooden walls. They look like glorified fences. In the days when the judges ruled, when these people would, would do their best to help the tribe get along and learn to work together. It's, it's a reference to the history. And you can imagine that with that scene, you can imagine this is like, it's a different world, it's a different time, and it's tough and it's difficult and there's struggle and there's hardship along the way. And this indeed is a reference to the history described in the book just before Ruth, the book of Judges. A book of the Bible so named because it highlights when the people of Israel were ruled by judges, religious leaders, and societal authorities who are responsible for the well-being of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this book is known for its vicious atrocities, tribal warfare, groups fighting against one another. It is a very base, carnal book. One particular vicious telling is that of the judge Ehud. One of the neighboring lands had attacked Israel and made them subjects to them for 18 years. And Ehud went to this king to present the tribute For that king, the tribute that was owed, the tribute that the 12 tribes of Israel had been working hard on. And after delivering the tribute, he says to the king, uh, he says, "I, I, I need to talk with you and you alone. I have a secret message for you. And so the guards check him. Okay, if you're going to talk to the king, let's check him. And he he opens up his robe and they look. He doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have a sheath there. They say, okay. And so they leave him with with the king. And the king was a large man, living well off the tributes of the conquered people around him. And he says, king, lean in for this secret. And when the king leans in, the story says Ehud was a left-handed man. And so he kept his sword on the other side, and he reached in and he stabbed the king. So, uh, and it says when he stabbed him, the sword he could not pull out. So, so graphic is the book, the description is, because the king's fat was so great, it swallowed up the sword. A vicious telling. You might be saying to yourself, well, pastor, why are you sharing that story? That's not in Ruth. Why, why are you sharing that kind of morbidity here? 
Well, if you found yourself asking, well, which nation was that that had subjected the Israelites in this way? What nation was that then that the judge had to go and, and, and kill? It was none other than Moab. That the land that Ruth and Elimelech had went to go and settle. The land where their sons had found wives. This is the opening of the story book telling us about Elimelech and Naomi moving to this very land. And, and they are thinking about moving back to Israel. When Naomi is thinking, I'll go back. And Ruth and uh, Orpah are thinking, okay, maybe we'll come back with you to Israel. There is all this animosity between Israel and Moab. Whether this is taking place while Moab is still exacting tribute, or this is taking place someplace afterward, there's still this history of we, we are a fighting people. There is great discord between them. And this animosity is during a time when it is well documented among the people of Israel that they don't have associations with people from other nations. Yet the entire book of Ruth takes on an entirely different tone than that of Judges. as a whole different outlook than the book of Judges. It's as if it is imagining what the world could be like if everyone followed the laws of God. It's, it's as if it's imagining what the world could be like if we took seriously what it was like to live faithfully to the ways of God without resorting to violence and hate. It imagines what might happen if people of different backgrounds might learn to live together and indeed learn to help each other in times of crisis. Can we do that? Can we imagine a time when people from that area might learn to live together? People like Israelites and Palestines, where they might indeed might intermarry, might support each other in times of crisis? Can we dare to imagine a future such as this? Dare to dream that our God is great enough to exact the kind of missional relationship He has called the nations to, if his people would just be faithful to the covenantal relationship to God and to one another, today it seems impossible. And it's to that kind of impossibility that this book is written when it says it's the time of the judges. But yet Ruth, with all its optimism, with all its hope for what it would be like if we were to live with covenantal faithfulness, that steadfast faithfulness permeates this text. Ruth is all about showing us what faithfulness looks like. When we hear the time of Judges and we hear of Moab, we should be thinking of a time that's just as deadly and terrible as things are in that area right now. The book of Ruth, though, will prove to bear a refreshing picture of grace and hope in just such a time. It's said at the beginning of Ruth that Elimelech and their sons have passed away. doesn't tell us what happened. We're left to wonder, well, did they succumb to the famine in the land? Was it related in some way to the constant skirmishes that was happening? We just don't know. It's unknown. All that's known is that this story begins with tragedy, the kind of tragedy that afflicts us all too often, lives gone far too soon, leaving behind sorrow, pain, and widows. And so Naomi has decided to return to Israel, to her homeland, 
She knows that there's some people there and perhaps she'll find someone she knows. Someone with whom she can share the rest of her life with. Perhaps not in marriage, but at least a friend they can tell and share stories with. She has two daughters-in-law whom are also widowed. They are Moabites. They were never a part of Israel. They're not going to know anybody there. They're not going to blend in. Their cultural differences are going to be immense. They're going to have an accent. They're just, they're just, they are going to stick out. So Naomi says to them, go back to your mom's house. And she blesses them with her dismissal. May the Lord deal as kindly with you as you have with me. She says to them, go, you have my blessing, please. But the two of them say, no, no, that can't happen. We, we have to go with you. But Naomi refuses to hear it. She cries out, I've got nothing left to offer you, and I will never have anything to offer you. That whole statement about having, having a son to give you as a husband was based on a culture where, where the brothers would take on the widow so that they wouldn't be homeless if their husband died. And she used this great sense of hyperbole because there's no way that they would ever in reality imagine she would actually give birth to their future husbands. But, she said, but it's her way of saying, I don't have anything now, and I'm never going to have anything for you later. And she says, you need to go. I, I can't help you at all. And she says, please go. Orpah hears this, and she returns to her mother. It's not easy for her. She's saddened. Her mother-in-law's pain is indeed her pain. She's been living alongside of her with her, with her husband, with, with Naomi's son, For her to return home is to abandon the life that she had built all around her this whole time, that she'd built around uh, Naomi. It's not an easy goodbye, but she kisses her and she goes. Ruth, on the other hand, refuses to leave. This is where she says, where you go, I'm going to go. Where you lodge or where you stay, that's where I'm going to be. What an amount of immense love that Ruth has for her mother-in-law. She sees through the pain and the trauma, and she knows the need that is there, and she's committed to care for her. Sometimes people say things when they're hurting, when they're in the midst of trauma that they don't mean. Hurt people will often hurt others. It's what they know. It's what they're experiencing. And they often don't know what to do. They don't, and they don't even know what they want. And they don't mean to hurt somebody, but they can't help it. Naomi is as unpleasant as possible trying to separate her pain from the pain of Orpah and Ruth. And she pushes them away as much as possible. But in the face of this, Ruth says, No, I'm with you. I'm with you. What a bold word. What a great show of faithfulness and care. I mean, we we can skip past this now and go on, but I want to linger just a little bit more before moving on. Verse 18 says, When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. She said nothing else to her. Now, maybe that's a figure of speech. I'd like, to meet, I'd like to think maybe it's a figure of speech. Maybe it's a way of saying they stopped arguing about it, said no more about it. You know, they're not arguing about whether or not she could come. And, and, if, and if that is the case, it's just a figure of speech, then it just means, hey, they stopped arguing about it, then, then that's okay. Then it means, hey, they can move on. And oh, that it would just be a figure of speech, that 
things could just move on. We often hope when we are walking with somebody through who is struggling, who is mourning, who is hurting, who is making mistakes, we hope that this will be the last of it. We hope that walking with them will, will get easier. We hope that we won't have to address it anymore. Whether it's someone, we've helped someone out in a financial difficulty, we've given them a loan, or we helped someone through an addiction, or we've helped someone uh, get counseling, or we've bailed someone out of prison. We hope, we hope that this is the last time. We hope that we, there will be nothing more that needs to be said about this, and that we'll be able to move on. But that, of course, is not always the case. But imagine if this isn't a figure of speech. If this indeed is indicative of the hardship of continuing on in the midst of helping someone who is hurting. If Naomi didn't say anything more to her the entire trip to Israel. Can you imagine that? The silent treatment the whole way. That Ruth, while trying to be faithful, trying to help her out along the way, that enti- the entire way Naomi is just brooding and mourning and wishing to be alone. Yet Ruth, despite all that, is faithful. She's present. She's beside her. This is what faithfulness looks like, exemplified in people who stick together through the long haul, through the illness, the, the ones who forgive wrongs. When I, was, uh, when I was in college, I was part of a traveling um, drama team that went to different uh, churches, and we put on different... Christian-related skits, and looking back, they were all just—they were all ridiculous, but they were like mini parables, and we had fun doing this, sharing this with the churches. But I remember going to this one church, and um, and they said, "Hey, we, we want to introduce you to someone who was our youth pastor a few years ago until he got in a bad accident, and you're and uh, and there's someone who uh, loves what you're doing for their kids, uh, even though they won't be able to tell you that." And I went and I saw and encountered an immense example of faithfulness day in and day out as I was introduced to a young couple, uh, a a young mid-twenties, a lady who was taking care of her husband who had been in a a bus accident, now a quadriplegic and, and hardly able to talk. But the whole time she talked about her daily routine of helping him with his various therapies to try to get his legs to restore feeling, helping him move his arms, helping him out through all the necessities of life. And I remember looking at that as a very young man and saying, wow, she had no clue when she married him what this was going to entail when she said for better or worse. Yet here she is and has been for years when most people would say, I've got the rest of my life ahead of me. I have to find a way to move on. She has said, no, I'm going to be faithful here. And it was a great picture for me to see what faithfulness can look like and what it means to truly commit to another. Ruth, in this story, uh, is that uh, story of faithfulness. And that experience in my life showed me indeed what faithfulness through the hardest times looks like. By the time they get to their destination, Ruth's faithfulness has not changed Naomi's disposition at all. She is as bitter as she can be. Someone who had been known for her pleasantness, so known that that's why they called her pleasant, which in Hebrew is Naomi. Despite Ruth's care, Naomi has let the trials of life embitter her. So she tells those 
who remember her smiles, those who remember her hugs, those who remember her warm disposition. Well, you're not getting that anymore. You can call me Mara because of how bitter I am. And so this is a story of a change taking place in Naomi, but yet Ruth recognizing there is something more here and this is still somebody for whom I am committed to. And the chapter in Ruth, this chapter ends with these words. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. They have returned to Israel right at the time of harvest. And this is amazing because they had left the land during a famine. Things have fallen apart since then. And at the end of this chapter is the beginning of a saying, maybe, just maybe something new is about to happen. Maybe God is able to do something new in the face of this. Perhaps God has some good news in the midst of the turmoil. And at the beginning of this very involved story, we are confronted with the faithfulness of Ruth, the steadfast obedience of Ruth, despite terrible circumstances. And she provides for us not just a role model, not just, but, but like hope against hope. Then even if there are plenty more valleys ahead, then I'm with you, she says. She, she, she shows us what faithfulness looks like, what faithfulness that comes from what she had learned from Naomi and from Elimelech, from their God, a faithfulness that she recognizes, no, I need that God in my life. I want to be a part of that. And she identifies herself with Naomi and the God she had taught her throughout her life and says, I am with you and embodies that kind of faithfulness. We recognize as Christians that the faithfulness of God is shown most clearly in Jesus Christ. The faithfulness of one who came to earth while we were yet sinners, while we are estranged from God, at a time when the world was set in just such a way that the rejection of his son was all but evident. And so, uh, but yet God loved us and desired to be with us. And he is the God who continues to be with us through the valleys, through the journeys, no matter what, even in periods of silence. We say, I can't even talk to God anymore. God doesn't leave. He faithfully comes along beside us. And that way we see a picture of God in the faithfulness of Ruth. And that is the calling Jesus has for his disciples. That the world might indeed be able to see the strength and the comfort and the presence of God through the life that we live together. In a moment we're going to have communion together. And it's going to be a way of, for us to remember that Jesus was willing to go where we all go. He was willing to be faithful in the midst of tragedy. And in that faithfulness, we see that Jesus has committed himself to us. Would we be willing to walk alongside with him to wherever he leads? And faithfulness like Ruth to say, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you stay, I'm going to stay. I am following after you. Let those words of Ruth become our words as we live faithfully to God and as we step forward to receive this sacrament, this gift of grace by which we remember our God is with us. And maybe be surprised that perhaps we have entered into a season 
that is going to be more fruitful than we have remembered in a long time. But God is with us and perhaps leading us to something new. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for each one here. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can turn to you wherever we are, whatever's on our mind and whatever we are going through, and we can trust that you are the God who will be with us. And Heavenly Father, you have shown us in just this chapter what faithfulness can look like. And you have shown us your faithfulness and that we can turn to you again and again, and you provide strength and encouragement along the way. And Heavenly Father, it is good to know that this is just the beginning of a story in which we will come to realize that you are the God who redeems and restores. You are the God who invites. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you help us in these days just to be faithful to you and to open up our eyes to what you might be doing, to new moments of grace and hope and peace that you bring to our life that show us that you are not finished yet. Your work of redemption is continual and still at work. Thank you again for your grace in our life. Thank you for being with us, and thank you for this story of Ruth. Help us, Heavenly Father, now to come to the table as a walk of faithfulness, a walk of fidelity to you, your covenant, the hope and the peace that we can have and share with the world around us. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this sermon podcast. We hope that the message has inspired you to draw closer to God each day. May God bless you as you serve him today.